Welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. What's going on, people? Welcome back. As you can see, I changed the name of the show and um, the reason for the change is because originally when I came up with the logo and the title, intro, all that good stuff, um, I found out after that there was 50 shows with that same name. Um, and so I said, I, I got to change this. This is, this is ridiculous. Um, but I didn't want to go back and rearrange things, but it uh, kept annoying me. So I changed, I decided to change the name. So here we are. And uh, it's the same theme. I'm looking for truth, interviewing guests that have uh, different viewpoints that aren't exposed or aren't mentioned in mainstream media. We're challenging the ideas of the day and of yesterday and uh, looking for truth and doing it through a godly perspective, through a biblical perspective. So here we are. I hope you guys enjoy this new interview. Um, we're talking about climate change today. I got a few links in the description. Check those out as well. Let me know what you think. Peace. Today we have special guest Mark Morano. He's an award-winning producer, writer, and host of the documentary Climate Hustle Part 1 and 2. He's the author of the Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, Green Fraud, and his newest book, The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. Now, Mark, you've been labeled as a, a climate killer by Rolling Stone and also a, a criminal against planet Earth by another um, eco magazine called The Grist. And Newsweek has also lab labeled you as a king of um, being a skeptic. What made you a skeptic on climate, on climate change? What led, led you down this path? Well, that's a great question, uh, Rashid, Rashad. I started out as what I'd call a Republican except when it came to environmental issues. And I, I was a volunteer on Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign. And I was always like worried about species extinction and deforestation, the Amazon rainforest in particular. And what happened was once the Rio Earth Summit happened in 1992, I remember starting to explore the environmental issues more deeply. And I was able to realize that, it, that the, there were many lies about particularly rainforest at the time. You know, five football fields a minute, 30 football fields a second. They kept coming up with these different stats. Turns out I ended up doing a documentary on it a few years, you know, many years later, eight years after the Rio Earth Summit. But essentially for every acre of rainforest cut, 50 are being regenerated. They have sustainable forestry. So I felt I'd been conned about the deforestation issue. And in many cases, the species extinction case where they kept claiming all these species were going extinct and uh, they couldn't even name the species. They, weren't, they couldn't even name the Latin names. They were potential species that may exist in the environment, but they don't know the names of, but they were based on computer model simulations. So that is how, by the time climate change came around, and to me, in my world, in the late 90s, I was already skeptical of the environmental movement because I felt I'd been duped. So I started my first interview, I think it was 99 or 2000, with Jerry Malman, a federal climate scientist, and then I, I worked for uh, American Investigator Television and then later Cybercast News Service um, and started as investigative reporter, I started attending the UN conferences. And what I saw was a political process. I did not see the world's top scientists trying to find the truth. I saw exactly what there was to see, which was a political organization in the United Nations setting up the cart before the horse saying that carbon dioxide is a dangerous pollutant driving a crisis. And guess what? Once we label it as such, we have no incentive not to label it. We get to be in charge of the solution as well with UN climate treaties. So the whole thing was politicized from the day the United Nations started their climate panel in 1988. Okay. Um, now, for those who don't know what CO2 is, why yeah. is CO2, first of all, what is CO2 and why is it such a big issue? CO2 is a harmless trace essential gas in the atmosphere. Humans, we inhale oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide. And this is, in, uh, carbon dioxide is essential for things like photosynthesis, uh, to convert energy from the sun for plant growth. And CO2, if you look at the geologic history of the earth, 
we are in the 10% coldest period of Earth's history. In other words, 90% of Earth's history has been warmer than today. Uh, and also we are in the 10% lowest carbon dioxide of the Earth's history. In other words, 90% of Earth's history has had much higher CO2 levels. And we've had CO2, we've had uh, ice ages with CO2 many times higher than our current levels uh, or even projected levels that they're coming up with. So what it is, is the, the, and it, but here's where they get us, is that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and theoretically has a you know, warming effect by trapping in heat on the earth from the surface and not letting it escape. But the problem with that is there, uh, is that the correlation between Earth's history and CO2 isn't there. And even Al Gore's film showed carbon dioxide and temperature in lockstep. And it was a very convincing chart until you realize that temperature leads CO2. In other words, the temperature would go up and then CO2 in levels in the atmosphere would increase. And the, the reason behind that is as the Earth warms up, the oceans warm up and they outgas uh, all this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So the whole premise of the climate scare is based on CO2. And the idea is that because it's a greenhouse gas, more CO2 equals a warmer world and even more CO2 equals a climate emergency. That's the claim. Um, but the simplest way of refuting that, and besides, you know, I could, and, I, and that's what I've done. I'm a, I come at this as an investigative journalist. So I cite the world's top scientists, former UN climate scientists. I cite the UN reports, especially on things like extreme weather, the National Climate Assessment, not their summaries. That's a key distinction because the summaries are politicized. But the underlying reports show you that hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, droughts, wildfires are not, either not increasing or actually decreasing on climate timescales. But to simplify this, and the simplest explanation is there are literally, quite literally, hundreds of factors that influence our climate besides CO2. Everything from tilt to the Earth's axis, water vapor, methane, clouds, um, ocean cycles, volcanoes, uh, the sun. And the idea that we can just pick one politically selected factor, carbon dioxide, what humans exhale, and say, that's the one we need to control. We need to shut down modern society. We need to go full Marxist in order to control it. That's literally what they've done. And they've tried to scare us. And they failed to scare us. Since the 1980s, Gallup said the concern over global warming has not really changed much in the US. It's ebb and flowed. You know, Al Gore's movie ticks it up. Climategate scandal ticks it down. But the key is, since March of 2020, the whole world has changed, Rashad, because now climate and COVID are being merged together. We now have the Harvard School of Government, the British Medical Journal, a study in the journal Nature, 230 medical journals all saying that unchecked climate change leads to more COVID-like viruses. So that's how they're going to get us. COVID is now part of the climate agenda. Uh, climate will not stand alone. It's now considered a public health threat. The World Health Organization calls it the greatest public health threat of the 20th century. If you thought COVID was bad, you know, climate change is going to cause all these problems. And to boot, it's going to cause a lot more viruses. That's literally the direction they're going. And I'm not citing mm -hmm. a Greenpeace blogger or some fringe person. I'm citing the premier peer-reviewed medical and epidemiological public health journals, science journals of our age. Uh, and doing all these studies from Harvard to the journal Nature to uh, to 230 journals. So human beings contribute to CO2, but you're saying that there's other factors that contribute as well. Yes, I, you know, that's the key here is, yes, if, if let's see if I can come up with an analogy. Say it's like you're in a grand hotel lobby, right? And you put on a space heater that represents CO2, even 20 space heaters. And they start warming up the lobby. Well, if the lobby were a closed system and that was it, that would be the end of it. But now imagine that lobby is you know, a, a, a diverse system like the earth with no roof and windows open. And you suddenly realize that, yeah, there's, there's a source heating it here. But at the same time, there's all these other counteracting effects and all these other hundreds of factors that we don't even know what they do. In fact, in the 1970s, and I have a whole chapter in my book, Green Fraud, on this, before fossil fuels caused global warming and went the end of us, fossil fuels caused global cooling in the 1970s. And the theory there was that the fossil fuels were creating aerosols that were going up and creating this, uh, blocking the sun and creating uh, what would be called global dimming 
which was then causing global cooling. And that was a very big deal in the 70s. You had peer-reviewed studies, you had NASA scientists worried about it, you had academics writing a letter to President Nixon, you had a CIA report on it, you had scientists blaming bad weather, wars, extremes on man-made global cooling. So they don't really know. And the point is they're trying to point all this as it's some kind of catastrophe. The other thing to mention is CO2 impacts are what you'd call logarithmic. In other words, most of the impact you get of warming from CO2 come uh, have, may have already occurred. In the, and then one of the analogies that a climatologist has used, if you have a window and you're painting it a color a paint, the first color coat of paint is going to block out a lot of the light. And then each additional coat of paint isn't going to make much difference. It's a long way to say that all of the warming we may have received from CO2 may have already occurred and it might be saturated. In other words, more CO2 is going to equal a negligible amount of climate impact. And we're seeing this now with a lot of the former climate fear mongers now admitting it's not a climate crisis and saying we need a rational way to go forward and not this hysteria and not like Greta Thunberg says, I want you to panic. Uh, mm-hmm. But but ultimately nothing, and the kiss is key, nothing unusual is happening in our weather now. The first United Nations report, 1990 climate panel showed the medieval warm period much, much warmer than temperatures in 1990. And then there was a campaign and I worked in the US Senate. We had a a scientist testify at our committee that he received emails of other scientists involved with the United Nations that said, we have to get rid of the medieval warm period. Because what was happening is people were looking at that and saying, well, wait a minute, it was warmer during the middle medieval times when we didn't have coal plants and SUVs and air conditioning. How do you explain that? And they literally said, we have to get rid of it. And so a guy from Penn State, Michael Mann came along and literally got rid of the of the uh, the medieval warm period. His temperature chart showed the last sorry my microphone keeps falling the last thousand years as flatline, and then suddenly the 20th century temperatures unprecedented warmth. Well, that was the issue uh, of uh, of that that he literally monkeyed around with these statistics, and then that became a big issue of contention. And the climate gate emails from 2010 revealed that even Michael Mann's colleagues at the United Nations did not buy his his record and proxy. And it turned out to be statistical rubbish that he essentially massaged all the old data and proxy data to literally create a hockey stick. So the temperature is flat and then it the, like, looks like a hockey stick laying on the ground. And that was a big deal because they got what they wanted. And now, as, a, as an example of that same kind of... Uh, um, corporate, uh, not corporate, but government, international organization coverage, the U.S. EPA is now upset that the 1930s heat waves are dramatically higher than anything we've had before since by about 10 times. You can look at the Biden administration's EPA heat chart of the United States, and it shows the 1930s as 10 times higher than any heat wave decade we've had before or since, right? So how does the EPA handle this? They have a a report out that says since 1960, the heat waves have increased in the U.S. If this continues, catastrophe. Why did they pick 1960? That was at the beginning of this whole global cooling that continued on through the late 70s. They picked one of the coolest periods of the 20th century to start their graph at. And that is what's going on. So now we have a Texas A&M professor actually started a public campaign, and it's literally the same phrase. We have to get rid of the 1930s EPA heatwave chart because it just ruins their narrative because it doesn't make sense. 80% of our man-made CO2 that they're concerned about came after World War II, like 1945 and later. So how could the 1930s still hold all the heat records here in the United States with the best records? And they can't explain it. So what do they do when they can't explain it? They alter the past. And that's what's frightening about this. Wow. So these are scientists that are falsifying data pretty much. They're they're just. Yes, but that's such a a loaded term, falsifying. They would never say that. They're making adjustments. They're they're smoothing out the statistics. They're putting in new parameters. They're, you know, they're doing science. And you know what? You're not smart enough to figure it out is what they would tell anyone who questions. And no, we're not going to release our data. And this was what happened with Michael Mann. He basically said, and many other scientists, especially affiliated with the UN, we're not going to release our data because your goal is just to find something wrong with it. You know, in other words, you're here to cause us problems. Why would we release the data? And the climate gate emails showed they were literally sending emails like delete your emails, delete your data. We're not we don't we're not going to comply with this Freedom of Information Act request. 
And hold wow. on one second. Well, I try to fix this microphone here if I can. I don't think I can. Uh, oh, well. You, uh, you sound me, good now. Okay. I'm just trying to place this somewhere. Let me see if I can put this. One sec. No problem. Anyway, okay. Continue. I got yeah. it. Yeah. Well, in your book, um, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, uh, one of the claims made was that uh, climate change policies actually crush the world's poor. Yes. How, how does that happen? How, how does it affect the poor? That is one of the biggest issues here. We're watching it in real time right now. The World Bank does not want to do fossil fuel development projects in Africa. They're not, they don't want to finance coal plants, gas, oil. And the, and the theory behind this is fossil fuels are, of course, driving the climate emergency. In the white, wealthy Western world, Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand the United States, we've all essentially used up the world's carbon budget, our CO2 allowance, and the earth can't handle it anymore. And I've interviewed Governor Jerry Brown of California at a UN Earth Summit, and he literally said, if Africa and South America and Asia develop like Europe and the US, we'll need five more planets in which to handle it, because the earth can't handle it. So therefore, it's a creeping form of colonialism. You now have uh, the international bodies, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, and the white wealthy, wealthy Western world telling people of color in the developing world that they can't develop like we did. Instead, at a UN, one of the UN chiefs, and I went to this actual press conference where they were bragging about providing solar panels on the huts of African tribes. So, which is fine if you don't have anything, but that's not the solution to poverty and no running water, no electricity, high infant mortality, no healthcare, no modern dentistry, and filthy environments. Because the cleaner, the more wealth and prosperity and development you get, the cleaner your environment gets. You're not cooking with dung. You're not breathing in all the particles. You're not using rivers for waste and sewage. Um, and, and as many of these poor nations and places in poor sections of India and throughout Africa, I mean, the worst environments are the ones that don't have wealth. And the wealthier you are, the cleaner you are. So the perverse thing here, and I interviewed a South African development activist named Leon Lowe at the Earth Summit in the United Nations Earth Summit 2012. And he said what the United Nations Climate Fund is literally doing was evil. It's paying countries in the developing world, in Africa, South America, paying their leaders millions of dollars not to develop. And the leader who is best able to keep the citizens locked in poverty to meet the UN climate agenda, they get the most money from the UN Climate Fund. What do they do with that money? They're building stadiums, monuments to themselves. They're buying off votes. They're ensuring their reelection. It's not really helping the people, but hey, they're helping the climate agenda. And one of the highest attending delegations to the United Nations, in fact, the highest attendance rate, are from the African nations. Now, why is that? Is Africa unusually interested in climate? No, they're the ones that the United Nations is promising the most cash to because they're the ones that need to restrict their development the most because Africa has the most natural resources. So the more the UN can keep all that energy locked in the ground, the better the, for the climate deal and to meet the net zero climate commitment. And so what's happened here is this is an anti-human agenda people still at subsistence level of living with no running water, electricity in huts made of dung are being told they have to sacrifice or they have to leapfrog directly to solar and wind power, which just is not going to cut it. You can't make wind, pa wind panels and, and uh, solar panels with wind panels and solar panels. You need fossil fuels to make them. You need fossil fuels to mine. You need to mine for fossil fuels, for rare earth mining. So none of this makes any sense. It's a way essentially of locking in poverty almost a billion people. It's a new form of colonialism. The, the wealthy white Westerners telling people of color they can only live a certain way and we're going to control you. And it's all because of the good of the planet. That's, that's crazy. So what, what is the best, you said fossil fuels are probably the best form of energy. Well, they're cheap and reliable. Now, you know, obviously there's all kinds of problems with all kinds of energy, whether you're talking, I did a story once on solar panels in the Mojave Desert, and there were, there were actually people suing over the endangered, endangered desert tortoise being impacted because of all the solar panels. 
Imagine all the mining involved in windmills and solar panels and electric car batteries, environmental destruction. Same thing when you're talking particularly about coal mining, strip mining, even oil drilling, offshore oil drilling, oil leaks. There's always environmental hazards with energy. We've gotten radically better. In fact, just your average car in America since the first Earth Day, 1970, is 99% cleaner for all sorts of pollution, not talking about carbon dioxide, but talking about everything from carbon monoxide uh, and all the other pollutants you'd put into the atmosphere. So technology has cleaned up uh, everything when it comes to that. But in terms of, uh, in terms of all this energy, yeah, I mean, fossil fuels and solar and renewable have all the same issues of not in my backyard and wherever the projects are, they're gonna cause a disruption. The question is really is cost benefit analysis to a society. And you can go back a hundred years, the global production of fossil, the earth was run on 80% fossil fuels. Fast forward to modern times, the earth is still 80% fossil fuels. Look at the United States, go back to 1970s, same percentage of fossil fuels are running our economy. All the money and mandates going into renewables is not denting it, not because they didn't try hard enough or give enough money, but they because solar and wind can't cut it in their current form. I'm not saying there won't be some major technological breakthrough and maybe you could do some research and development, but that's different than mandating solar and wind to replace oil, coal, gas, fracking, when all you're gonna do is end up creating energy shortages. And that's what's happening, unfortunately, right now. And what they're doing with Africa is they want to promote these green policies that rely more on like solar energy, wind energy, and these things for the sake of, I guess, having a clean environment. But at the same time, the people are going to be poor and, and be impoverished. It's going to, yeah, radically limit their development. And it's a lie that it's going to give a clean environment because we're going to be relying on Chinese run rare earth mining for the EV batteries, for the solar panels and for the windmills. I mean, disproportionately, I mean, your average car, gas powered car, I can't remember the exact number. It might be 10 to 15 times higher of rare earth metals required in an EV car. So all of these mandates and all of these things that they're trying to do are under the false premise of being clean and green. Not true. Not true at mm -hmm. all. In fact, all of these solar and wind panels, they have windmills and for instance need uh hundreds of gallons of gas for a giant windmill to, oil sorry to, for to, to run you have the solar panels they all need in solar and wind both need battery backup and or diesel generators which again rare earth mining and or fossil fuels and then you have a whole problem with recycling not only ev batteries but also the windmills and solar panels and that's a whole nother issue that they're trying to solve and figure out so the idea that there's just some magical thing we just have to get off fossil fuels and keep it in the ground it's all a fantasy and that's why my book yeah. green fraud really goes into the depths of that Wow. I'd like to see Black Lives Matter get involved with that scandal on keeping keeping Africa poor on purpose. Well, there have been, there, been, there's been African-American ministers who actually protested uh, Robert Redford's home. Robert Redford is a big Green New Deal climate agenda supporter. And they actually showed up. This was at a, um, not his house, but it was, uh, what's that film festival he does in Utah, which I'm not thinking of it. Uh, he has a movie festival, Robert Redford, every year okay. in uh, Utah. Um, but they showed up at that because he was doing the premiere of one of his environmental films. And the gist of this was, this was the African-American, I guess you'd say conservative ministers in America. And I can't remember, it was like 50 to 75 showed up to protest. And the gist of it was, you're making energy more expensive and it's disproportionately harming people of color, minorities, seniors, those on fixed incomes. And to what end? And that's the other thing is to what end? end because as john Kerry has said repeatedly even if the united states zeroed out our emissions to zero no more production of any fossil fuels no carbon dioxide the earth wouldn't even notice because china india the developing world are going full steam ahead china has been purported to be building one coal plant a year they have more than 50 percent of the world's coal production india's ramping up coal production russia's laughing at all of this meanwhile europe tried to be good stewards of the environment they at one point in the uk they were talking about pouring cement into their fracking wells to meet the net zero goals they were they were they were saving the earth meanwhile they were now countries like germany were 50 percent dependent on russia's dirtiest fossil fuels with low human rights standards low environmental standards and of course uk war breaks out and then what happens europe goes 
collapse economically and energy-wise, and now they're doing everything they can to reopen coal mines, reopen drilling. Uh, you know, a green fantasy is fun when times are good, but the second you hit a bump, you realize that's not reality and the party's over. And that's what Europe has realized now. Right. So how much are we spending the U.S. as far as um, trying to combat climate change? Well, I, there, uh, an old estimate was something the world was spending like a trillion or two trillion a year to fight climate change. In the United States, it's so perverse. They just passed what, we, what they called the Inflation Reduction Act last year, right, which was almost $300 billion. The problem is it should have been actually named the Energy Reduction Act because it had nothing to do with inflation. And they later admitted this, all the architects, and they laughed at the, that the name Inflation Reduction. It's Energy Reduction Act. And this money now mandates decades into the future, constant spending of subsidies and mandates for solar and wind. So you have the government getting involved in an engineering problem and essentially guaranteeing us massive energy shortages in the future, regulating all the fossil fuels and increasing their costs and putting them out of business eventually, which is their stated goal. You have that. Now, Joe Biden came, I was at the UN Climate Summit in Egypt uh, in November 2022. Joe Biden came to the summit and bragged that they had passed this nearly $300 billion investment in fossil fuel. Well, the two days earlier, John Kerry and Al Gore and others were talking about several trillion dollars a year investment being necessary in uh, you know, to fight global warming. In other words, there is no amount of, I'm talking about annual, like this is insane amount of money, four trillion, five trillion. And the money, what is it doing? It's going to, in the case of all these solar and wind, it's going to a lot of democratic donors who are making money off this. It's going to the carbon trading markets. On the Republican side of the aisle, you have people pushing the Million Trees Initiative. We don't support the Green New Deal, but we're going to plant trees and solve global warming, and we're going to capture carbon. So you have all these Republican donors now getting money from the carbon capture and sequestration industry, where they're buying up land and they're trying to capture carbon from the air and then pump it deep underground. It's another boondoggle. And again, it's not going to make a difference to even our CO2 emissions, let alone global CO2 emissions. But it's a way to make everyone feel like we're doing something. Their greatest fear for these timid Republicans and Democrats at these town hall meetings or by the interviewed by CNN, what are you doing about climate change? You can't say, uh, you know, I don't think it's a problem. And, you know, and we must have the courage in the face of a non-problem, we must have the courage to do nothing. They won't say that. Instead, they'll say, well, we're planting trees and we're capturing carbon and, and we're, uh, you know, we're for all of the above. And then the other side will say, we're for the Green New Deal and we're supporting the UN Paris Agreement and we're for net zero goals. It's all policy related bunk that's impoverishing us and uh, essentially depriving us of energy. And we're seeing the effects of this every year. Uncontrolled inflation, skyrocketing energy costs. And this is only the beginning. This, this Energy Reduction Act they passed last year with Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia's help is literally going to be decades of, of destruction to the U.S. energy and economy. So if they're spending all this money on this, right? And earlier you mentioned, I think it was the World Bank. Um, yeah, that not allowing development, not funding or financing development in Africa particularly. Right, promoting this, this green agenda and keeping Africa poor. So if the U.S. is spending money on this same agenda, does that mean that they're trying to keep the U.S. poor and de-industrialize de the U.S. and basically yes. impoverish us? Yes, good question, because that's the flip side of this. The, the whole idea of the U.N. Paris Agreement, the whole idea of the Green New Deal, the whole idea of net zero, build back better, is all to knock America down as much as possible. In fact, the stated goal of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, which came out two months after the COVID lockdowns. And by the way, everything I'm telling you, the whole climate debate changed in March of 2020 because they declared a COVID emergency and then they bypassed democracy. And overnight, the Green New Deal was imposed on the world. Stay at home orders, planned recessions to fight climate change and you know shutting down the economy. They praised the lockdowns. They loved the idea that politicians could just do what they wanted with emergency order. You didn't need parliament, city hall, Congress, uh, board of supervisors. It was all just done with an unelected bureaucrat and through executive order. The most consequential decisions of our lifetime. 
Closure of churches, closures of schools, closures of business, stay-at-home orders, curfews, canceling of weddings, funerals, canceling of backyard barbecues, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Everything I just mentioned, Rashid, was never voted on by elected officials. It was all decreed by public health and executive orders from governors, mayors, and um, presidents. This is what's so frightening uh, about this agenda. So. Go back. What was your direct question? Because I did get a little sidetracked there. You asked me. Yeah. No, I was just saying um, it, it seems like if this is what they want for Africa and they, they're oh, pushing right. the. So as I say, yeah, the, the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum right after COVID stated their goal was to make the United, Na United States no longer the world's superpower. And so all of this is meant to, to bring us down. They're trying to restrict our energy. In fact, we're looking at right now, currently, with the current policies they have, an intentional collapse of our energy, which I talked about, an intentional collapse of our food, transportation, currency, and free speech. I already talked about energy, our transportation, these are done without a, a, a democracy. Gavin Newsom in California issues an executive order banning gas-powered cars by 2035, boom. California Air Resources Board follows suit, unelected bureaucrats come up with a timetable. 19, uh, 15 to 20 states have trigger laws to go along with it. The Biden administration, Pete Buttigieg, is looking at this saying we need this on the federal level. So then you have corporate government collusion. Then you have the World Bank telling automakers, you know, speculating to automakers that we may not be financing gas-powered cars at the automaker level. Then you have big corporate banks say, we're not going to give out car loans to people who buy gas-powered cars. And so here's what's happened. People are like, I'm not going to give up my gas-powered car. It's like, you didn't get to vote on it. And you won't be able to get the car because the automakers won't have the financing to do it. And even if they did, you wouldn't be able to get the car loan from your bank to buy it. So they're taking the choice away from us. And the, the idea behind this electric car, they're trying to force everyone into mass transit, city bus, subways. And what happens when everyone's forced into mass transit? Well, by golly, you better follow the mask mandate. You better follow the vaccine mandate. You better be a good steward of the of the government. If you said some misinformation on social media, your transportation card could be revoked. And then also we're setting up a situation like Cuba, where you have all these old cars. It's going to make the used car market unbelievable. And also we're setting up an East German style system where the government says there's only one approved car you can buy and this is it. And that's going to be the electric car now. And in the case of East Germany, it was the old crappy Trabant uh, car that people would be on waiting lists for a decade or more to get these crappy cars that the East German government made and, or maybe Russian made. But either way, you're the only car you could actually buy. Government is aping that now by saying uh, you, you can only buy this electric car approved. By the way, electric car from China, worst human rights records, worst environmental records, slave labor, exploiting Africans in Africa, destructive rare earth mining, half a million pounds of uh, rare earth material. That's just the car front. They're also collapsing our food here in the United States. Bill Gates, now the world's single, not the world's, but America's single largest single farmland owner, edged out China. Why does Bill Gates want sway in agricultural policy? Simple. He's publicly stated he wants us all the Western world to get off eating livestock meat. He wants us to eat instead what he's invested billions in, which is lab-grown synthetic meat. Now, I'm not talking about the impossible burger or vegetable burger that you'll see at Burger King. I'm talking about meat that's, in quotes, that's taken from stem cells from a cow or a calf and fetal blood, put into a steel vat, festered for months, additives added, antibiotics, whatever you need. And then at the end of it, you make it look like meat and work on the texture. You get a 3D printer and you print up several kilograms of meat an hour. This is what the World Economic Forum brags about. This is what Bill Gates is pushing. So what are they doing to achieve that? They're shutting down in the Netherlands. They're shutting down the number one exporter of meat. They're closing up to 11,000 family-run generational farms to meet net zero goals. The high yield agriculture bans come to Canada, Australia. It's decimating Australian farming. And it's coming here through United right. Nations Sustainable Development Goals, to our UN Paris Agreement, through the Biden administration's you know, things. So the idea is we are going to be shutting down agriculture, creating food shortages. What else does food shortages do? Creates chaos and makes us more likely to accept eating insects as an alternative source of protein to meet. We know this because in Australia, they're already giving cricket snacks to kids in <laughs> elementary school. And they're, they're, they look like potato chips, the crickets are powdered, but it's a psych op where kids are being told, 
that, hey, I ate an insect today and they should go home and pester their parents for that. So they're doing that. They're also collapsing our free speech, corporate government collusion, big tech censorship is government censorship. And of course, they're also collapsing our banking. We have now last year, Biden issued a central bank digital currency, which the Bank of England is very clear on this. You will only be able to spend money under a central bank digital currency on what the government deems sensible. So if you want to buy meat, if you want to buy gas for your car, if you want to buy tobacco, if you want to buy uh, you know, higher utility bill with your money, they can shut your money off at a moment's notice if they deem it not sensible. So this is what we're facing. And, this, and, and colloquially, this is called the Great Reset, explicitly by the World Economic Forum and Build Back Better by President Biden. The idea is you collapse the old system and you build up the new sustainable system. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you basically just did a whole presentation. <laughs> I mean, what? so what recourse do the people have? Because it sounds like what you're saying is just being done without any type of um, input from the people and the citizens. This is just, be, this is like dictatorship and being done. And that's exactly what it whim. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For decades, our ruling class, let me just get the first opening statement here is throughout history, the ruling classes, our elite, the educated, the top echelon, have always basically tried to come up with reasons why the rest of us should not be free. And they've always come up with crises and emergencies. And so in my book, I go back to the Roman Republic, through the Middle Ages, through 1933 Germany, and through the 9-11 terrorism, the 9-11 Emergency Act of declaring a 9-11 terrorism emergency, and then the Patriot Act, which allowed domestic surveillance, and of course the COVID emergency, which bypassed democracy. The greatest violations of civil liberties have occurred throughout human history when governments have declared emergencies and basically bypassed democracy and crushed human freedom. And that's what we lived under under COVID. That's what we're still living under 9-11. The, the, the terrorism emergency declaration is still on the books. They're never going to get rid of that. Um, because it gives them unbelievable police powers. That's why we're having such a resistance to get rid of the COVID powers. And guess what? Biden wants to declare a national climate emergency, which will give him 130 executive powers that he did not have, which could extend to mayors, governors. You could have mayors, governors shutting gas stations due to the climate emergency, mayors, governors controlling your thermostat with your smart meter, which we've already seen happening in Colorado. This isn't made up. By the way, Ford just put a patent out on a device that will lock your car down and shut it off and drive it to a, a repo lot if you are behind on your payments. Now, think of the usefulness of this Ford design patent that locks your car down remotely. You can't start your car, it takes away air conditioner, takes away the radio, actually does screaming yells at you, like so you can't even be in the car really loud to the speakers. Imagine if they decreed you'd already driven too many miles that, that week and you were violating the climate emergency order. They, you would have corporate government collusion and I'm sure Ford Motors would have no problem at all saying, oh, you've exceeded your allotted mileage in a climate emergency. We have climate activists say, no one will be able to fly in a declared climate emergency unless it's, quote, morally justifiable, unquote. So in other words, if you're flying to Florida for a family funeral, okay. But if you're trying to fly there for a vacation, not going to happen. We've lived through this. Humans have. East Germany, exact same thing. You had to apply for permission from the government to travel. So nothing new here. It is a form of tyranny since then. Two, two decades, the ruling elite, and when I, when I say ruling elite, I mean the establishment. I mean the New York Times and Harvard and academia and our corporate ruling class have all praised China's one-party authoritarian rule. Tom Friedman on the pages of the New York Times, China, China's one-party rule can get things done on climate. They're enlightened people in China. The UN climate chief has said that US democracy was detrimental to the fight on global warming because it's so messy and slow and gridlock. She said China's doing it right on climate. Justin Trudeau, Canadian prime minister, said in 2013, he admires China's basic dictatorship for getting things done. They can do all the green things and fight climate change. Apple CEO Tim Cook from Apple, from MacBook, the CEO of the company, actually said at a public forum that that China and Apple's values align, particularly on climate change. Uh, and then, of course, I have many other examples in the book of people praising it. So what happened with COVID, with these emergency decrees bypassing a democracy, the once free West 
copied one-party rule China. And that is why people like Jane Fonda, the Hollywood actress, said COVID was God's gift to the left. It gave them everything they'd lusted after publicly, one-party style rule like China. This is why when the lockdowns happened, World Health Organization, Neil Ferguson, the modeler, Anthony Fauci, the media all praised China's lockdowns. And the actual phrase from the World Health Organization was, we have to copy China if we're gonna save millions of lives. And copy China meant draconian lockdowns, endless for years on end. So yes, it is, it is, a, it is a dictatorship. And the way to fight back in my book, the last chapter is filled with hope. I talk about the parents of school boards fighting back against the COVID theater, the lockdowns, the mask mandates, and the, uh, in some cases, vaccine mandates, angry parents willing, and they were called uh, domestic terrorists by Biden's Justice Department, but they were so vociferous across the country, particularly in Virginia, we toppled the Democratic Party machine in Virginia and a couple other places, and almost they almost toppled a government a governor in New Jersey who was in a Democratic state. The Democratic Party got terrified did focus groups. And according to the New York Times, which I cite in my book, The Great Reset, that was the decision that prompted them to lift the mask mandates and vaccine mandates in every major city from San Francisco, LA, Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, New York, um, on down the line because of the parents agitating at the lowest level of politics. That is how you fight this back. But otherwise, what's sad is you see people running for president. I think their platform should be we are going to stop energy destruction. We're going to stop the banning of meat. We're going to stop the banning of gas-powered cars. We're going to stop you know, the banning of free speech. And this is all done without our consent. We're right. going to bring back democracy. We need emergency power reform because the way it works is with COVID or anything else, these executives can just declare these emergencies and years go by and legislators can't even meet. And these are on the most consequential decisions, whether you can leave your fricking house, whether you can go to your job, whether you can go to church, whether you can get a medical care, whether you can go to a wedding or a funeral, this was not decided by democracy. It was imposed on us and the left and the progressives loved it. And many establishment Republicans loved it. My number one presidential candidate right now is none other than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That's how perilous the times are we live. He is the only candidate who's made his founding principle fighting against these emergency powers, COVID lockdowns, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, public health tyranny. That's amazing. Um, how much time do you have left? <laughs> I can do like 10 more minutes. Okay. Quick, some quick questions. Sure. Um, what country would you say is the number one polluter in on the planet? Well, it's a good question. When you, now we have to define pollution because if we were you asked well, Al Gore that question, he would talk about CO two being a pollutant. In uh, terms of in terms of the UN and uh, the the climate change. In terms of um, climate, believers. okay. In terms of climate, and I have charts in this in my presentation. Yeah, China is the number one CO two emitter in the world, and they're also the filthiest environmental. They're doing the most rare earth mining. They, they, I mean, they don't care about human rights, environmental standards. Followed by India. Um, and I'd have to look at the chart, but I, the United States might be a distant third. Now, the United States is the historically the greatest emitter of CO2 over time in history. But China has overtaken us economically and, of course, with CO2 emissions. And they are just going full steam ahead. So anything okay. we do now has no impact. On, and John Kerry has been this very articulate on this, actually. Over and over, he's stated that. So, But anyway, yeah, but China would be the ruler of your answer to your question. Okay, so if China is the number one polluter and we're trying to, the U.S. is trying to fight pollution and implement these green policies, isn't that giving China a, uh, an advantage over us to like become a superpower? It's exactly what it's doing. What happened was, if you go back, these free trade deals and opening all this arms exchange, technological exchange with China, reaching out, the whole theory with opening our economy to China was that they'd become more like us and they would lose their authoritarian streak. Well, what happened? The opposite happened. We're becoming more like China. We're following China's social credit system. We're following China's model of one party rule. We're following China's model of corporate government collusion. And so, yes, it's exactly what it does. The entire industrial base of the United States can, continues to be gutted what's left of it because our costs are going up here, environmental regulations that are absurd to the level compared to other countries to the point where we can't compete. So what ends up happening is 
we can't do the industry here and, and we end up just buying everything cheap overseas from China, India. And in the case of energy, we have the Biden administration begging OPEC and Middle East, Venezuela uh, for oil. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. And this is why we should come up with a principle like ethical oil, where the ethical energy, where the idea is you want to buy your energy from countries with good human rights and good environmental records, which means we should be homegrown. They're shutting down our domestic energy and instead begging the countries with the worst human rights and environmental records for more energy. It's completely insane unless you understand that their goal is to knock down America and their goal is to create shortages. Their goal is to create chaos, shortages, and more control. So the, in other words, the more people that are economically displaced, the more people that need to be on universal basic income, the more we can be placed on a, sort of a low level subsistence level of life. And then the, the more these politicians can increase their base because the more people under you who are dependent on you for incomes and universal basic income and, and money and subsidies, the more guaranteed you are to have their vote. So that's why they like economic recessions and downturns. They get to do new programs. They get to expand welfare. They get to expand universal basic income. And you get all those voters loyal to you. And that's why politicians really don't care about these things. In fact, when I was in the U.S. Senate, I remember we were talking about cap and trade at the time. And it was going to raise energy bills. They do absolutely nothing except raise energy bills. And Bernie Sanders and other senators loved it. They're like, great, we're going to set up a new federal program that's going to subsidize the poor who can't afford the higher energy bills. That's a win-win in their mind. They get to manipulate the market. They get to crush cheap energy. But at the same time, they get to pay subsidies to all these people who now are they're going to have more people dependent on them to vote. These people aren't going to vote against the politicians that are saving their life uh, economically. When you, you talked about the, uh, I think it was the World Economic Forum saying, or another organization saying that we have to um, basically deindustrialize the West, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Um, so the leaders that we have in office right now, like the president, does he not know that these policies are harmful to the West and that we are basically impoverishing our citizens? And And if he does, why would he want to do that and implement these policies and give other countries advantages like China and make them the superpower? Well, that's a great question. And I think part of their part of the, we're talking about the modern, say, Democratic Party and even the Republican Party. Part of them actually believe that it's magical. And we've been told and I don't blame them because they've been told for decades that, you know, solar and wind are cheaper easier to operate and they're they're gonna they're gonna just replace it and they're they're we're, we're cranking up and they're just they're, they're taking over from wind from fossil fuels and it's amazing and we just have to get fossil fuels out of the way and everything's gonna be clean and green and we're gonna have all this great energy. it's a complete fantasy world so i think what's happened in the last year and a half other but prior to the year and a half meaning the ukraine invasion and then everything's sort of the, the s-h-i-t hitting the fan i think what happened was they all thought they were all buying into this green dream, uh, as Nancy Pelosi called the Green New Deal. And I think that is a big part of it. Even people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he was governor of California, passed the first California climate bill. It was historic. He was a climate hero. He gets out of office. It was years after he left before all of the effects of his bill hit California. So it's very easy to delude yourself and wrap yourself in sort of a moral thing. You're saving the planet, you're supporting solar and wind, and you've been told for decades that it's cheaper and more bountiful and plentiful than fossil fuels. But I think once the reality hits, it's gonna change. Similar to like what happened with, after George Floyd incident with the, with the uh, defund the police movement. Defund the police had been a sort of a dogma of many on the left progressives for decades. Finally, they got to put their theory into action and what happened? Every major city had skyrocketing crime and inadequate police response. And of course you had prosecutors not prosecuting misdemeanors. And now you have even Joe Biden coming in at a state of union to standing applause saying we need to refund the police. So I guess the answer to your question is, it's easy to do something when you believe in it and it's a utopian vision and you believe that utopia, but once it comes back at you, how long are you gonna stick to it? And I think there's signs even right now to answer your question directly, and I'm seeing it from some of the left, that Joe Biden realizes this was a fantasy because just like defund the police realized it was not gonna work, I think they realized the Green New Deal is not gonna work because it's been laid bare by what's happened in Europe, what's happening in the United States, what's happening around the world, just in the last year and a half with skyrocketing energy costs. So I think the Biden administration now is moving 
to open up oil and drilling and leases, and they may even allow the Arctic drilling for the first time. So a lot of the left and the, and the utopian believers of green energy are getting mad at Biden, but you're absolutely right. And I think that's the best explanation I can give, assuming they're acting in good faith and they're not either. A lot of these people are profiting off of it. And so what happens is a lot of the Democratic donors particularly benefit from the carbon trading, from the subsidies and solar and wind, and they invest in all this. Al Gore led the way. He had a whole investment portfolio of companies. 2008, Obama wins, and lo and behold, tens of billions of dollars went to all those companies Al Gore had publicly stated he was investing in and he's on the board of. Al Gore was actually made very rich by that, and all the people associated Democratic donors were made rich. So when the donors are pushing something, the politicians respond. But that's what happens. But I think now there's going to be serious, serious blowback. And I don't think Biden will be able to keep pushing this. Yeah, a um, few more points. Um, so if if Biden, let's say he has a utopian view of the world, and he, think, he thinks that th these policies are going to save the world or save the country. Specifically, they think solar and wind are just going to replace coal, oil, and gas, and it's going to be great, and there's going to be no problems. It's but insane. They're not even, solar is 1%, wind is 3% of our total energy production. I've already mentioned that over 100 years, fossil fuels are still 80% of our energy, 1915, 2020. No change. Sorry, you can't wave a magic wand. But anyway, that's what I mean by he's not realizing. Go ahead. But what I'm saying is, is this an innocent mistake or is this in being done intentionally? Because, and the reason I ask that is because we're not dealing with fools. I mean, some of them are fools, but yeah. these are people that have been Ivy League educated. They're not necessarily stupid. You know what I'm saying? No. Because they, they do have to practice some type of skill and intelligence in order to come up with these policies. So I... I there's a part of me that doesn't believe that this is just some innocent utopian vision. Yes, it's, it's, it's an ideology. And now if you go back to 1970s, John Holdren, who was Obama's science czar, actually said the problem with America is, is energy that's too cheap, too abundant. And he lamented people hopping in their car, going to the grocery store, getting a six pack of beer and driving back home. You have many UN figures uh, who believe that the carrying capacity of the earth, meaning the max population should be one, maybe two billion people. In other words, we have eight billion now. So get rid of six billion people. This is what the ideology dictates. So it's an anti-human ideology. It's against sort of modern times. And they want to go about it by I think here's a key point I think I need to make. It's not so much they just want to collapse everything and see misery and pain, but they want to create enough chaos that puts them in control. And remember, the guiding principle of this ruling class establishment, the finest universities, the most educated bureaucrats and the, the corporate and media elite and the Fortune 500 is they've always throughout history have tried to figure out ways by the rest of us cannot be free. This is their impulse. I go back in my book to Woodrow Wilson's presidency, 1914, where the idea of this administrative state came up. They want it, they believe that we're the unwashed masses and that we need to be regulated by experts and expert control. Otherwise we'll create racism, environmental destruction, a climate crisis, uh, inequity, just we're, we are essentially are, uh, cannot be allowed to govern ourselves. So part of it is, is to create these crises, create these economic downturns, and then the tentacles of government and the ruling class power over us grows, grows, grows. That's their goal, is to essentially rule over us and make sure that we don't, we're not unruly. And I think that's the simplest explanation for it. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of one so, other example, but yeah, but you know, that's, that's literally what we're witnessing here uh, yeah, so directly. So basically to bring slavery back in a sense. So it's a form of slavery, but not outright slavery. The idea is it's here's what they want to do. They want to get slavery, rid of yeah. election. Elections won't have consequences under this. And here's the idea. And this was actually articulated during Woodrow Wilson's presidency. It, it didn't take them, but it came back in Roosevelt. And then it came back again later. It comes and goes. But the idea is if like, for instance, right now, Biden's pushing a World Health Organization pandemic treaty. It's the most frightening bleep bleep thing you can imagine. It can cause instant global lockdowns. Bill Gates funded scientists at the World Health Organization declare a pandemic. United States is going to be part of this. They can declare lockdowns, global internet shutdowns. They're going to be seeking uh, stay at home orders, vaccine mandates, mask mandates. And their goal is to get rid of outliers like Florida, like Sweden. They want everyone on the same page in unanimity, locked, every, you know, in lockstep, uh, in lockstep to do lockdowns. 
And so the, the whole idea behind this is to make it so that whoever you vote for, for governor, president, senator, congressman, ultimately will have no power, that the real power is going to reside in the administrative state, or you could even say the deep state, because they're going to have the consequential power over our life, like they did during COVID. So we can have that, what you'd call kabuki theater, the nonsense of voting for this candidate against that candidate on these um, some of these cultural issues that distract you. But the real power is going to reside in the bureaucracy, and that's what they're trying to set up now. So it doesn't matter if you elect Ron DeSantis governor of Florida, if the United States is in a pandemic treaty, and then the United States says every state must comply, we're going along with the World Health Organization. Then you have a showdown with people like DeSantis who doesn't want to lock down. It's just, this is what their goal is. They want to make it so elections don't have consequences. They want to make it so elections are just theater and the real power is, is behind the scenes. And that really is the ruling class's power. And by the way, what you just said about slavery, in my book, I, I, in the early chapter, I have the opening quote from economist Milton Friedman, 1999, who said, most of history, people have been enslaved and in misery throughout all of history. The only exception has been the last 150 years or so. And there's no reason we should take that for granted and assume the last 150 years are gonna last forever. Most of history, mankind has been in some form of serfdom slash slavery, subservient. And we have to fight like hell because this is, and this is if you, if you Listen to what Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the reason he excites me as a presidential candidate, and I may not agree with him on a lot of other issues, but on this is a core issue. And that's the key point, too, Rashad, is this is no longer left, right, Democrat, Republican. It's freedom versus tyranny. I have a right. whole chapter devoted in my book, The Great Reset, to embracing progressives like Jimmy Dore, Bill Maher, Russell Brand, Naomi Wolf. Uh, Cynthia McKenney, the old congressman, mm -hmm. Vandava Shiva, everyone who we can unite with against this great reset, uh, essentially bypassing a democracy, we need to, because this isn't the time to be like, oh no, their position on guns or abortion doesn't match right, up with right. mine. It's not about that. I mean, guns are important in abortion, but, but this is about the process by which we need to crush this tyranny now. Right. And last question. Earlier, you were talking about COVID. And I think um, in one of your presentations, you mentioned how before COVID, I think the UN was trying to reduce CO2 levels by 7%. And yes. then after COVID, they, got, they achieved 7% decrease in CO2 levels. And you're talking about the relationship between COVID and, and um, climate change. In your heart of hearts, do you think that COVID was used as a pretext to implement this agenda? No, good question. I, I actually quote Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the book, and I say, it "Really, we don't. I don't have the answer to that. But you know, now that we know it's from a lab, and we know what China's agenda is, and we know." you know, what everyone's surrounding China and funding, I mean, it makes you wonder, but no, I don't have a position on that. I will say this though, in my book, and I think it's chapter three to four, I go through all the pandemic planning events they had, 2010, 2018, 2019. These were hosted by the Rockefeller Institute, by the World Health Organization, by Johns Hopkins, by Bill Gates. And they all laid out this dystopian vision of lockdowns, mask mandates, shutting down the global internet, uh, just basically public health tyranny. In other words, we face a crisis, same thing with climate. We must go full Marxist to save the planet. Same thing with COVID. We must lock down in full tyranny to save our lives. We'll save millions of lives. Freedom is the enemy of life if you listen to them. So what I think is this has never let a crisis go to waste. They were ready. They had three major planning sessions of our global elites waiting to go. They implemented the plan exactly. And you can go through my book. I mean, I go through chapter and verse with footnotes, direct quotes. They literally, with COVID lockdowns, laid out all the stuff they'd been planning for a decade or more, and they were ready. So never let a crisis go to waste means it's kind of the way a gun control advocate would wait till the next school shooting. I wouldn't say that they, oh, the, the gun control advocate probably sent in a shooter to kill those kids. No, they just are, are opportunism waiting the same way a lion waits in the tall grass for the next victim. So that's what happened with COVID. I don't necessarily think it was foisted on the public. And the same thing you could say about 9-11. I'm not going to get into that with, with origin theories, but whether uh, that was terrorism, I believe. But the issue is our national security state was crying over the end of the Cold War, had not recovered. They saw the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon 
as their greatest opportunity to bring back that military industrial complex. And they did it beyond their wildest imaginations. Same thing with Afghanistan, by the way. We finally yeah. pull out of Afghanistan after 18 years. Within what, seven months, we're back in Ukraine and much more financially and now with deeper, bigger consequences. If you start looking at history like that, they don't have to plan anything. They can just sort of let stuff roll. Now, in the case of Ukraine, it appears they did provoke Russia years earlier, and there's multiple instances of that by, right. you know, by violating. But anyway, um, those are topics for a different day. But I do believe that uh, it's about waiting for that crisis and being ready. So that old expression, you know, luck is the uh, combination of planning and design. You know, the idea is that you've been, you're waiting and you're in the right place at the right time. Well, they were in the right place at the right time when COVID but, came and they were ready to spring and spring, sprang they did. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're always in the right place at the right time, conveniently, you know? And, 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 <laughs> well, they I, have so many different tentacles. It's all, it's easy when you're in the government to just think of ways to increase your power. That's all they do. Yeah. It's like, it's just so stupid. I hate these. I, I did this. I increased spending here. Oh, that must have been hard. Did you have to twist arms to increase spending? I'm sure the legislature. Yeah. It's just a joke. Government grows. Government's power and influence grows. So that's why it always appears that it's always it's, it, they're in the right place. They're always in the right place at the right time because their tentacles are in a million different places through the bureaucracy, through all the different uh, interventions that government does. Right. So um, before we wrap up, where can people find your work? I'm at climatedepot.com. I'm at Climate Depot at Twitter. My book, the most recent, just came out is The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. And before that is Green Fraud and the Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. Uh, but I have whole two chapters on climate lockdowns in, the, in my book, The Great Reset. And I think I lay out the COVID climate connection and I lay out the whole history of the administrative state, the abuse of emergency powers. I go through the collapse of energy, food, transportation, uh, free speech and our currency. And what would you say is the most one of the most important things that you would want people to walk away with after um, watching this interview? I guess the single most important thing is question authority. I just cannot believe that people actually think, well, fact checkers are good. I, John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy, in 1963, at the opening of Voice of America, which was sent into the you know, communist Castro and Eastern European nations as the voice of freedom, said a nation which doesn't allow its citizens to judge the merits of an argument on their face and judge information from misinformation is a nation that doesn't trust its citizen. So the biggest thing you can do is question the narrative, question authority, and the other biggest thing is resist. Resist the mask mandates, resist the vax mandates, resist the social distancing, resist the lockdowns, resist the climate lockdowns, resist the smart meters, resist the digital currency they want to impose upon us, resist the idea of them doing this without democracy, get involved. And as I pointed out, the lowest level of politics had the greatest result during COVID. And that was the school board level. Angry yeah. parents of the school board affected change in all of our major cities. Wow, that's a sign of hope. Well, Mark, thanks for your time and um, best of luck on everything. I'm definitely going to um, read the book and, and promote it. Thanks for your right. time. Thank you, Rashad. Appreciate it. God thanks bless. All right.